That was really beautiful. And thank you, Daniel, for reading our scripture. What a moving peace assurance was, right? The whole faith journey and song right there. It was uh, really a gift to have you here today. Thank you for sharing with us. We appreciate it. This last week before last, actually, this last Sabbath, you had the great blessing of hearing from Pastor Mike and what a great gift that was in worship. We were away for a week before last on our spring break. We did a bit of a road trip adventure with the kids. We did lots of hours in the car, but even better, we did hikes every single day, sometimes more than one hike in a day, and we spent time in that kind of space. I just love it. We started off in Washington Monument and then ended up in Zion um, and a lot of canyons in between. But it was a really beautiful time. And especially now that Ava's four, she can do some pretty good hiking. So it was really fun, but we are glad to be back with you. Or I should say I am. The kids and Caleb are up at Herky Creek for the camp out. But I am glad to be back here with you after enjoying some of the beautiful desert spaces. Would you pause and pray with me as we open up God's word together this morning? Our Lord, I thank you for every instrument that has played this morning and for the praise that has been lifted up from your people today. Our hearts have been moved in your presence. Truly, this has been an expression today that everything that has breath has praised you and it has been moving to witness. We pray, God, that you would meet us in the place of our need today, in our joys and in our trials, that we would find that you are there. So we turn to you asking that as we turn to the scriptures today, that we would find this to be a living and active word for our lives today. Bless each student especially that has led us in worship. I pray your blessing over them, your favor, your goodness. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a pastor that describes this story of taking a colleague with him to go visit a woman, a longtime member of the church who was now on her deathbed. She had been actively dying um, on her deathbed for a few weeks, now down to nearly 65 pounds. And as he and the colleague walked into the room, they realized that as this son and daughter-in-law and husband were all gathered around her, that here was a woman, now 90 years old, who had come to this point at the end of her life, but was so used to doing all the things. She was in charge, she was organized, she was coordinated, she did all of this. And so they saw her, even though she was struggling to speak, she was asking them, have you called the fire department? Do you have these papers in order? She kept asking to make sure that they had it all and that nothing would catch them by surprise. And they just kept reassuring her, it's okay, we have it. And she just kept saying, I just want the Lord to come right now. I just want the Lord to come quickly. Won't he just come? She was ready to die, yes, but she was also ready to see her Lord. And then when others had thinned out and gone to the kitchen to get snacks, this pastor and her husband and her were the only ones left in the room. And he leaned over to her and he said, darling, just relax. Be at peace. Rest in the Lord. And just wait for the Lord. 
And she turned as if this statement caused her even more stress. She said, I can't with just such strength. And he said, then my dear, wait anxiously for the Lord. It's okay. And the pastor commented that this statement more than anyone else trying to make her relax or trying to make her to be something else, this statement more than anything else brought her peace. Could see it wash over her body as she was just, oh, I can just be right where I am. All the way up to the end, I can trust in the Lord. Because whether you're waiting patiently or whether you're waiting anxiously, it's the Lord who's doing the action. This chapter in Matthew chapter 24 is so beautiful. It's a place that we come back to, but yet it's so full of destruction. It fills us with hope, but it's also filled with, some have said, terror. When you read this, you see Jesus teaching as he's sitting there with the disciples. He's blending these two events one that they were anticipating that was very eminent for them, which was the destruction of Jerusalem, and one which Daniel referenced in his reading, verse 3, the end of all things, your coming, when will this all wrap up? When Jesus comes again. These two events blended, but the, what the disciples experienced and what we experience is that there are promises that we do not yet lay hold of. There is an already and there is a not yet. We recognize as we study the coming of Jesus that like Pastor Steve with his giant clock around the neck, we find ourselves waiting and waiting and waiting. So as we look to this text today in this chapter, we see that there are these points of disaster that are recounted. There are uh, states of the human heart as well as states in the environment that could cause us to be afraid. There's wars, betrayal, hate, false prophets, the love of most growing cold. As you look at all of this, some have said, ah, how can this chapter bring peace? But there's promise right here in this too. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. And we'll find this teaching of Jesus, this blending of what he was instructing them as well as what he is instructing us with now. We'll start in verse 9 as we see some of those things recounted. You will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But whoever stands firm to the end will be saved. And verse 14 is the crux of this chapter, this message, I believe. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. You see, wars and famines and earthquakes, they will be taking place then and they were taking place, they're taking place now. These signs of destruction have been taking place throughout all periods of history. But this sign of the end, when things will culminate, is when the good news, the sweet good news of Jesus encounters every heart. The other signs keep going, but the gospel of the kingdom to the whole world 
is the message that Jesus says will bring about the conclusion, the wrapping up of all things. But here's where we find the tension because we can fall into ditches on, on either side when we hear this message that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world, that's a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Some can take it on as their responsibility, the pressure, the worry, the concern that we must do this because it is our responsibility. That's some of what you hear in last generation theology, that it's our responsibility to become the last generation on earth when Jesus comes. And then on the other side, the other ditch we could easily fall into is, well, it's up to God. I'm just going to go about my whole life and just be a traditional, cultural Adventist. Yes, I'll live by this, but uh, I'm going to leave that to God. That's the tension that we live between. What we find in between, though, is the sovereign of the universe. The God of all has chosen to use human instruments. This point that we realize is that God works in the incarnation through his people. That in your life and mine is how the kingdom, the love of God goes to the world. That's the reality. And that can be hard for us sometimes. We can either want to say it doesn't matter or it matters so much that you forget that there is a Holy Spirit and you think it's on you. Either way, it allows us to become uh, blind to the sovereignty of our God. The truth is that God has chosen to use human instruments to reveal the love of God to the world. And it's not up to us, the Holy Spirit works. God desires to work in power through the people of God. That is the church. Each of you, all gathered here, God desires to work in power and great strength. God wants to show up in love and glory and goodness through your life. This gospel of the kingdom going to the world through each of us. That's the call of the people of God. That's the call that we could so easily forget. What about this nearness, though, this waiting that Pastor Steve described where, what, are you sure those seeds of the promise are there? Are you sure? Shouldn't we just dig them up and see if they're doing all right in there, Dad? Those seeds that just seem to take so long to sprout. Are you sure you promised this, God? It just seems to be taking so long. Matthew chapter 24, if you go back to that same section, that discourse where Jesus was just speaking with his disciples. In verse 33, he says to them, even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. That this coming is near. What do we do with this nearness? Romans chapter 13, verse 11. We're gonna go through several verses really quickly. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Philippians 4 verse 5, it says the Lord is near. James 5 verse 8, the Lord's coming is near. Each of these authors, each of these men inspired in scripture use this term nearness. First Peter, Peter himself 4 7, he said the end of all things is near. What is this nearness? The second coming of Jesus is eminent. Well, we're not the only ones to struggle with that. You see, the believers then heard this message. They heard Peter in their persecution, and they said, near? What do you mean near? Peter shares 
that some deliberately forgot. In his books, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, he's writing to this persecuted church. He says, some of you have forgotten. You've started to follow all these other false teachers. But some of you have had this excitement and this passion. You know what you've believed and you've thrown yourself wholeheartedly into it. And then you've become despondent and discouraged because you didn't see God work in the way that you thought God would. It took longer than you thought and it still hasn't come. I wonder if any of us here today, if we were honest, would stop and say, God hasn't always worked in the way I thought God would. I'm still waiting on things that God hasn't done in my life. Or some of you have gotten far older than you ever thought you would. Some have recounted stories to me that when you were in high school, when you were in academy, sitting in the band, you thought, oh, there's no point in me registering for college because Jesus will be here before I could ever graduate. Some here in this room today have told me that they thought Jesus would come before now. What do we do with that reality? What do we do when God takes longer? Is God unfaithful to the promise? That's what Peter was answering the people in, first, in 2 Peter 3. We've been looking at 1 Peter for the last eight weeks. Let's go to 2 Peter this time. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 10, as he answers that very concern among these early believers that we too can resonate with. He says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting any one to perish but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Peter understands that some were bothered. They were becoming despondent and discouraged and despairing. Where is God? We've been waiting. We've been hoping. We're in our persecution, but nothing has happened. And he recounts for them two points in this section two reasons to substantiate what this apparent delay of the second coming is all about. Number one, he says, our perception and God's perception are not the same. This verse eight where he says a day is a thousand years and a thousand years a day is, is actually rephrasing Psalm 90, Psalm 90 verse four. It's not a direct formula. Peter uses like to say this is similar to, or this is something that we could understand like, that God understands the passing of time differently than us. We get irritated by even short delays, right? We become aggravated by just even having to wait 15 minutes when we thought our appointment would start at this time instead of this time. God understands time different than us, Peter says. For God, Time looks different. God hasn't forgotten the promise. God hasn't forgotten his purpose. That's Peter's first point. God doesn't understand time the same way you do. Secondly, he says, the problem of the parent delay has to do with God's purpose in delaying. You see, we could understand and view this delay as God's weakness 
Some even say God isn't even involved in the day-to-day activities here on earth. The idea of judgment is foolish. The idea of a second coming or a divine rescue, what are you talking about? God isn't involved with human beings. But Peter says the delay is not the sign that God is uninvolved or disinterested or has forgotten. The delay is a sign of God's compassion. The delay is a sign of God's heart. That God is deeply concerned about human beings and wishes that none would perish. That's a very different understanding of delay. That God cares about every single person here. That God wants every one of us to be saved, to be rescued, to fully experience the love of God. That God doesn't understand time like us and that God's heart is for us even in the delay is a critical understanding that shapes how we view what is happening right now. God is seeking, loving, giving every opportunity so that all can come to God. Like a thief, this phrase that Peter uses is the same one that Jesus uses and Paul uses, this like a thief, meaning that the timing of the second coming can't be calculated. You can't mark it on your calendar or set an alarm on your phone because it'll just come like you don't expect a thief to come. Mark 13, 32 emphasizes this too. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. No one knows. This is just going to come, Peter emphasizes, as Paul and Jesus did too. Going on right there with 2 Peter, if you continue on from that section that we just read, in verse 11 he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about fire, the destruction of heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you about the wisdom that God gave him. As Christians, we look forward to this coming. We open ourselves up to the redemption and the rescue, the newness, the life that will be coming. And while we wait we open up our hearts to the transforming work of God. What kind of people ought you to be, Peter says. Because of this promise, as you wait, what kind of people will you become as you are waiting? The verb here means to strive, to make an effort, to be eager, to be open. You're saying, work in me, I'm eager to have you do this in me, come. It's this sitting on the edge of your seat ready, like I want your work done in me while I wait for this promise of God. Peter reminds us here that the purpose of our understanding of biblical eschatology is to make better disciples of Jesus in the here and now. In other words, your understanding, you're delving deeper into understanding Matthew 24 and understanding the promise of God and the coming of Jesus makes you a better Christian today, transforms my life today. 
Eschatology can sometimes cause tunnel vision, but we must not miss that the point of this understanding of the eminence of Christ's return is to lead us to become more loving, more connected, more grace-filled Christians in the world today. That God wants to fill up our lives so that we have the opportunity to let that overflow into this world. Many have heard the phrase that you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Have you heard that? Yeah, that's not what Peter's talking about here. That you're not so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, but instead he says in light of this, in light of the renewal of all things and the hope and the new heavens and new earth and the coming of Jesus, in light of all of that, what kind of people will you be? How does that shape how you show up at work? How does that shape how you live in your family? How do you treat your friends and your teachers in light of all this? Because of all this that's coming, what does it look like for you to live godly lives now? Jesus was focused on the character of his disciples. They're asking him for a timetable. Could you tell us all the marks that we should watch for? Can you tell us exactly how this is going to come down? And he says, ah, you're looking for a timetable. I'm looking for character. I'd like to see who you're becoming. And then he provides us with the way of transformation to make that possible. He actually was focused on what would guide them in the days and the weeks and the years to come. Even though they had no concept, they thought actually that it was going to all come to an end pretty quickly. But Jesus was sowing in them the seeds that they would need to grow throughout the years to come. We ask together today in light of all this, what kind of person do you want to become? What kind of person do I want to become? You know, this comes with college decisions and career decisions. I'm always emphasizing, yes, find your passion. Find those things that you're looking for. Are there any seniors here? Anyone? A few? I thought you were a senior. I knew it. Just, yeah, exactly. Okay. It's important to find your passion, to find what God has equipped you for and skilled you for. But even more than that, God cares about the character that you're developing, regardless of what decision you make, what career you choose, what kind of character will you have? What is God forming you to be? We are to be people constantly looking forward, having hope in the renewal of all things, which causes us to be open to being transformed people now. That's the process and the tension that we live in because we know that the, the delay is for salvation. We know that the delay has to do with the character and love of God, that we can have a relationship with Jesus and that we can share that with other people, pour out that love into the world because Jesus is in us. We believe that God is at work. We hold to that even in, and in spite of all that seems different to that, the love of most growing cold, all the things that are around us that cause us to despair, we continue to hold on to the fact that God is alive and at work. But how do we get reminded of that? So often it's because of the people around us, because of the kingdom of God showing up in your life that I am reminded of how God is still at work. You can believe all the right things you can have all the right eschatology and not be changed in your attitudes or behavior. 
It's possible to have all the right information but not have transformation. God wants us to experience both, that we would understand and know what is to come and be transformed in heart and actions in the world. Shane Hips, an author, describes, what would you do if you were given $25,550? Would you buy a car? Maybe put a down payment on it, the way the market's going right now. Put it, save towards a down payment on a home? Would you start your own business online? Would you, what? What would you do with $25,550? $25,550 days is 70 years. The average life. And that is what we're given. What do we do with it? Even if you live to 100, like some of the amazing people in this community, in this area, that's only 36,000 days. What will we do with it? What will we do with the days that we have been given? How will we appreciate the sacredness and the fragility of this gift? I do like to travel, as you know. Some travel experiences I really don't love. Um, one of those, I was thinking of best and, and worst, and one of the worst ones is actually in O'Hare when they got multiple ice storms and snowstorms and ended up spending 56 hours in O'Hare Airport. That's one of my worst ones, one that I didn't appreciate at all. Um, but a number of years ago, I was traveling to go speak uh, at a conference. I was traveling by myself, and it had been an amazing event and because it was so amazing, I got really little sleep, like none. But it was so good. But then I got back on the plane, and this was a really rare experience for me because I usually am talking with people or connecting with people. But I got on the plane and literally fell asleep, like immediately. I was just like, out. And I remember this experience so vividly because I was on that plane and suddenly felt this just bounce and this bang and this loud sound and I just woke up with a start and I just started what I was so exhausted that I didn't know I had fallen asleep and then I didn't know that we had landed four hours later in my destination I was so surprised and startled by the landing because I didn't even know that we had taken off. Like, really. It's the only time in my life I'd, I have ever become completely unconscious on a plane. I was out. And I think of life as I thought through that story from years ago, that the invitation to me in this scripture today is to wake up because sometimes I don't even know that I've fallen asleep. Sometimes I don't even know that in the exhaustion of all of life that I've fallen asleep and so I'm startled by something. For you, it could be a news reporter, it could be a diagnosis of a family member or a near death, those moments in the car when you're just like shaken awake, like what could have just happened? Or when you realize that your child is safe, but they could have lost their life. Those moments wake us up. There are sometimes those experiences, some of you have had those moments when a relationship is about to end and then you wake up or something happens, losing a job. They 
cause us to wake up. The invitation of the scripture is to wake up to the reality of this precious life. To wake up to the transforming work that God wants to do in us today. Because the scripture says the gospel of the kingdom, the good news, the sweet news about Jesus will be preached to all the world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. That God's delay is about God's understanding of time and God's character and God's love for us. That Ecclesiastes 7, 1 and 2 says that us realizing What's going to happen here allows us to wake up to the preciousness of this gift. A good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of fasting for death is the destiny of everyone and the living should take this to heart. That us knowing what could have happened, us knowing where things are heading, allows us to wake up to the preciousness of this gift. So today, as we might be sitting in our own unanswered, our own waiting, our own delays, I invite you to open up your eyes, to ask God to pull back the curtain, to show you where God is at work right now, to wake you up, to wake me up, to allow us to see the goodness of God even now. As we live in that tension, saying, God, in your sovereignty, work in me, as I walk in trust with you. Let us be about the work of Jesus as we wait expectantly living this good news.